Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Hello and welcome to episode 111 of Who Killed. I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media podcast. Before we get started this week, I wanted to thank a couple people who have made donations to the show fund, and that would be Brian R. from Cleveland and Scott from Jacksonville, Florida. Again, their contribution to the show helps keep new episodes coming, and everybody who has contributed, I am very much appreciative. Now, if you would like to donate, you can do so by clicking on the link in the show notes. So again, thank you to everybody who has contributed. On this week's episode, we're going to go back to late October of 1994 in the city of Hartford, Connecticut, and the tragic death of Leah Albrick. I will warn you up front, the case is very graphic, and I'm going to do my best to keep the gory details to a minimum. So once you hear how she was killed, I'll do my best to leave it there. Now, I have fashioned this podcast as one that provides a voice for the voiceless. And while Leah had a family, her case still remains unsolved. And it's also one of those cases that over the last few weeks I've covered where people kind of fall by the wayside. And on October 29th, 1994, Leah's life seemed to be on the upswing. She had actually completed a rehab stint and was living in a halfway house. Now, Leah was one of those women whom I've spoken of before, the ones who seem to live in the shadows while the rest of the world seems to move around them. She battled addiction, which is a constant battle for anyone who's been there before. Kicking the habit of self-destructive behavior is just not something that can be done with the flip of a switch. Fortunately, Leah was able to get into a program that let her become sober. And unfortunately, this is more of an outlier than the norm, because if you are uninsured or don't have money, you are more than likely to try to kick your fix in jail instead of rehab. The importance of being able to offer these types of services to low-income people, I believe, is vital to any addict, but more importantly to society. I mean, you live in a vicious circle if people get locked up and aren't rehabilitated, and then released with no new additional education on how to not relapse, well, that is pretty much a recipe for disaster. I mean, we can tell by the fact that the recidivism rates in the United States are out of control. And as taxpayers, we are the ones who pay for this stupid-ass program. It's like putting a Band-Aid on an axe wound and expecting it to heal. That's just not how human beans are wired, let alone a brain that has been rewired due to a lot of drug use. Treat drugs like a medical problem, not a criminal one. But be that as it may, this is the world we live in. And in the case of Leah Albrecht, we see a woman who is working towards getting her life back on track. But on that day in October, Leah was spending her nights at a halfway house. And on this particular night, she did not come home. And it was in the early morning hours that police came across one of the most gruesome crime scenes of their career. According to reports in the Hartford Current, Leah was dragged to her death over several miles from Hartford to Weatherfield, leaving a trail of flesh, hair, and blood that horrified witnesses and police. 
Now, Leah was formerly of Wallingford, and she was pronounced dead shortly after 5 a.m. when police found her body on a blood-caked sewer drain on Jordan Lane near Goodwin Park. Again, I told you this was a graphic and awful story. Now, police announced to the public to be on the lookout for a dark, newer model car that they believed was being driven by a man in his late 20s. Police said the incident began about 4.50 a.m. with an argument on Hartford's Locust Street, which is kind of like an industrial area near I-91. Again, Hartford Police Lieutenant Joseph Bayuk told the Hartford Current that they had no evidence the slaying was gang-related. Police at the time said they weren't sure if there was any connection between the driver and Leah. Now, Bayek, who was the head of the Crimes Against Persons divisions at the time, said the crime was, quote, particularly heinous and gruesome. He told the paper, quote, I don't care how hardened of a detective you are. It's a shocking thing, a human being pretty much reduced to nothing. It's just a terrible way to die. In the same article, Jordan Lane resident... Lillian Urso, who was 29 at the time, walked into her front yard early Sunday after police had found the body in the street. And she told the paper, quote, whoever it was, I feel sorry for them. It just makes you wonder what kind of nuts are running around out there. At the time of the discovery, police couldn't find an address for Albrick. Now, I mentioned that she had been living in a halfway house. But again, this is 1994 and the internet was still very, very new. So it wasn't easy to track down Leah's family. Now, again, it's an interesting thing to note that the initial reporting of the crime, in each story, they mention Leah's court records. And I know they're probably just providing information, but to me, looking back upon it, it paints the victim in a bad light and almost places blame. Nobody deserves this to happen, no matter what they have done in the past. And these were petty crimes that Leah had been convicted of. I mean, we're talking about, like, minor stuff, you know, possession of narcotics and driving under suspension. So it's not like this was a major, major criminal by any stretch. After the police discovered Leah's body, they had sent her body to the coroner's office. And that's where the gruesome details were determined. Now, basically, what had happened is she was dragged for four and a half miles. And the results determined that she died of extensive blunt force trauma. Now, Hartford police said they had received some tips regarding Albrecht's death, but few significant leads so far. And again, Bayuk told the paper, we've received a number of calls, but nothing to this point has panned out yet. What was known by this point was Albrecht's body was found about 5 a.m. Sunday, after a caller had alerted police about an assault on Hartford's Locust Street. Officer Martin Burke responded to the call. He actually noticed a car heading south on Wethersfield Avenue, dragging someone along the road with it. Now, the officer turned around and he tried to catch up with the car, but it had sped off. Albrecht's body was discovered by the officer by following a trail of blood that led to a sewer drain on Jordan Lane 
in Wethersfield, just east of the Ridge Road intersection at the south end of Goodwin Park. Now, reading directly from Maxine Bernstein's article from October 31st, 1994, quote, Witnesses told police Albrick and the driver of a car had been arguing and punching each other at Locust and East Elliott Streets outside the UPS facility. The argument ended up abruptly with the driver taking off as Albrick hung from the car, Bayek said. Police said they suspect Albrick was either pushed out of the car or tried to escape from the vehicle, but her arm was caught in the seatbelt. Now, some residents on Weatherfield's Jordan Lane had reported hearing a woman scream, leading police to believe the victim was alive as her body skidded along the street. Just tragic. And Bayek said police have not been able to establish whether Albrecht knew her assailant, as I mentioned before. And again, when you have a case like this, it's really disturbing for anybody who comes across a crime scene as gruesome as this. I mean, it's just impossible to wall yourself out from the feelings that you get when you see something this awful. I can not even imagine. Now, one of the weird things is that her ex-husband was contacted and they had been divorced for about three years. And he basically said, quote, she was Mac's wife. I haven't seen her for three years. And he declined further comment. And that was Bob Albrick. Now, police said the driver, again, was in his mid to late 20s. He was well-dressed now. This is what they said. Well-dressed with dark, slicked-back hair and driving a newer-modeled dark car, possibly brown with a rounded rear end and either a temporary or facsimile plate attached to the rear window. Again, just wild. Maxine Bernstein was a current staff writer when Leah was killed, and she did a lot of the initial coverage. She wrote that Leah's dad... Robert Baskin thought she was finally getting her life back on track. She had successfully completed a drug rehab program in Middletown that summer. She had attended Narcotics Anonymous meetings, and she spoke of plans to get her high school equivalency diploma, or her GED. And so, it all sounds like someone who is willing to make a change. But like all addicts, they're human. And they slip up. Leah wasn't any different, and she relapsed and fell back on her cocaine habit. It was a setback, but not unexpected. Bernstein goes on to write, Leah had been staying at a halfway house, but unfortunately, two weeks before her death, her parents had lost contact with her. That's when the news came that no parent wants to hear from a police officer, and that's when they told them about the discovery of Leah's body. Now, as Baskin and other relatives mourned, they had hoped that the killing will at least send a harsh harsh message to others about the dangers of drugs. Leah's father didn't want to see his daughter die in vain, so he actually told the paper he hoped it could be a cautionary tale. Quote, My daughter tried very hard to battle her addiction. Unfortunately, she put herself in harm's way one too many times. She lost her life in a terrible, brutal way. One she didn't deserve. Now, her father actually spoke from his home in Washington, D.C., where he was chief of staff for a U.S. representative, Sam, 
apologize for my pronunciation, uh, Gedjensen. And he said, quote, Leah was a victim, and that's what people need to understand. Again, it was a current truck, tr- truck driver on his way home from his third shift route when he was the last to see Albrick alive. Again, I mentioned that she had grown up in eastern Connecticut, and she had moved to Fairfield County in the New Haven area. And, you know, she had entered that drug, drug counseling program as a teenager. In 1989, at 19, that's when she married Bob in a small ceremony in Chester and then became pregnant with their first child. A second child was born a year later. Quote, they were very young and very naive, but they fell in love, said Joanne Albrick, Bob Albrick's stepmother. The next two years, relatives said, were Albrick's best because they were largely drug-free. They said Leah was a bright, loving, and energetic young woman when she was drug-free. She steered clear of drugs as she cared for her young children in a spacious Wallingford home on Bayberry Drive. But as her marriage fell apart in 1991, Leah's drug dependency resurfaced, according to the paper. Quote, when things didn't go well in her life, she sought out drugs, her father said. Leah Albrecht's children were actually taken from her in June of 1993 after police discovered some not-so-great living conditions and a bit of drug paraphernalia in her home. The maternal grandmother and father actually took custody. Since 1993, again, this is all in the original reporting of this case, she was convicted of larceny, possession of narcotics, driving with a suspended license. Again, these are minor crimes, but I don't understand why it needs to be in the first article about her death. And again... This is just me talking about the fact that anytime somebody who is an addict or a sex worker or anything that puts them in a bad light, they don't get the coverage nor the attention that they deserve. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. Like, there's no way that police put as much effort into finding Leah's killer as they would if Leah was some suburban high schooler. Let's just be honest. I mean, it is what it is. So we live in this world where people visit sex workers, people take copious amounts of drugs. We have the largest drug usage rate in the world. And yet, if you get a criminal record and an addicted personality, you somehow become a shadow person and people stop basically recognizing you or even acknowledging your existence. You become a pariah, a social pariah, that is. And if you don't get locked up in jail, then you end up generally on the streets. And that's why a lot of these women turn to sex work. It just creates a vicious cycle that basically never ends well. So if we don't acknowledge the problems at hand then we are going to end up back where we began. And that is with people like Leah falling through the cracks. I mean, if you're a drug addict or your history has some criminal record, you aren't going to get the service from the police that some common citizen might get because of your past record. 
And that is clear. And I don't think that you can argue that anymore. I mean, I think if you look at the cases that I've covered throughout the hundred or so episodes that I've done, a lot of them have to do with women who have kind of fallen off the grid and live on sort of that gray area between, you know, homeless but not and, you know, living a sort of uh, nomad lifestyle. And it is sad that people like this, like Leah, end up where they do, which is dead. And, you know, it's not to say that they deserve it because they don't. I mean, they're just doing what they feel like they need to do in order to get money to, you know, provide for their habit. And again, if they were in rehab, I know she was in rehab and she relapsed, but this is one of those cases where if you have social workers, you have people who are cognizant that she hasn't been to the halfway house in so many days that maybe people should be looking for her. I don't know. I'm just pontificating on that. But anyway, the fact that Leah was left to basically fall through the cracks is just another sign of a broken system. And I feel like we need to be more responsible when it comes to taking care of the people who are regular citizens, regardless of what their pasts are. I'm not saying everybody deserves to be coddled and given a bed in a rehab facility. I'm just saying that we can be better people as citizens and recognize these issues as being health-related and mentally related, not uh, criminally related. Because it's one thing that leads to the other. You know, it's the addiction that leads to the criminal activity. It's not the criminal activity that leads to the addiction. So what do you do? Do you treat the cause or do you treat the the problem? It's just, you know, it is just a stupid-ass system. Let's hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp.com. As you guys know, 2020 was terrible. And things are still pretty terrible. But today I am happy to tell you about BetterHelp.com. Because if there's anything that's holding you back or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And it's really convenient because with the current state of the world, it really needs to be. So now you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. All you have to do is schedule secure video or phone sessions, and you can also chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp really is there for you. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. And if, for whatever reason, you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They even have apps for your smartphone or your computer, so you are never out of touch. So again, if you're suffering from anxiety or depression, anger, stress, relationship issues, heck, not getting good enough night's sleep, trauma, LGBT matters, they literally have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. And the thing I like most is that this is actually an affordable option. And Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month with the discount code WHO. So when I get started today, 
Go to BetterHelp.com slash who. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get you matched with a counselor that you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to BetterHelp.com slash who. Hey there, I'm James, host of Dakota Spotlight. We're back with a new season, You Killed Chris, A Friend's Fight for Justice. It's a chilling throwback to 1968. A college freshman, Christine Rothschild, is murdered on campus during her morning walk. Join us as we dive into this unsolved case and follow a friend's relentless pursuit of the truth all the way from the flower power era to today. Find You Killed Chris on your favorite app or at dakotaspotlight.com. Back to the story. Leah's funeral was held at a Connecticut synagogue shortly after her passing, and it was attended by her immediate family, her divorced parents, her brother and sister. And she was actually buried in a cemetery in the New Haven area. Now, Albrecht's family, according to the Hartford Current, they were striving to protect her children from the details of their daughter's death. And the children know that their mother is gone, but they don't know and didn't want them to know much else. And in this article, while discussing Leah Albrecht's short life, Joanne Albrecht recalled a poem the young woman left in her home in Wallingford. Quote, she wrote to her children that she was so sorry that mommy's sick and that she missed her two kids so much, Joanne Albrecht had told the paper. Quote, this woman suffered so much. Drugs had gotten the best of her. She was too far gone, and there was no coming back. Police at the time believed that the motorist who took Albrick had headed south of Hartford. And again, they're still trying to figure out what exactly the vehicle looked like. But they do believe that there was damage to the side door. Quote, hopefully this will make someone who may have seen something have a second thought and come forward, uh, Baskin said. Quote, I hope that they will see that Leah was a real person. I think we all value justice, and whoever did this ought to be punished. Something that's interesting about these cases that kind of gets overlooked, especially by the media that is covering them, is how the coverage impacts the family. And with constant coverage of Leah's death by the Hartford Current, they actually received a letter of to the editor from a family member of Leah. And I'm going to write it, read it to you verbatim. Quote, the title says, Coverage worsens pain for a suffering family. I am writing to the Current on behalf of my sister, Leah Albrecht who was brutally dragged to her death in Hartford on the morning of October 29th. My family and I are trying our best to cope with our loss and searching for answers as to why such a heinous crime occurred. Because of the nature of my sister's death, there has been a frenzy of news media coverage. During the past several days, she's been portrayed as nothing more than a common criminal and a petty thief who met an untimely death. The quote that really hit home however, was by the Hartford homicide detective assigned to the case. He stated on TV that, quote, no one deserves to die this way, no matter who it is. That really hurt our family. 
Although my sister had her problems, she was a genuine and loving person, and because of her caring nature, aspired to become a nurse. She wanted to help people, sometimes putting their problems ahead of her own. She wrote poetry and was a gifted artist. My sister was the mother of two beautiful children, and she loved them with all her heart. They miss their mom very much. We are so sorry they will never get to see them as they grow older. Our family would like to express our sincere gratitude for all the love and support we have received during this difficult time. When the culprit is caught, then maybe Leah can rest in peace. And that was from Steve Baskin of Haverhill, Mass. And again, like I've mentioned before, this is one of those situations where the criminal background of this particular victim overshadows the crime. This is somebody who was dragged to her death by some crazy individual, and that person's never been caught. I'm sorry, but I do believe it is important to find justice for everybody, and I don't believe it is vital to provide the criminal history to the public in the way that it's done. I, I totally agree with Steve by his acknowledgement that she's been portrayed as a petty criminal, and that's what I've been trying to say about all of these women, is that once you fall into this category, you're in that category, and good luck getting out of it because people paint you in that corner. And again, that is the corner that you will have to live your life. Unfortunately for Leah, it ended when she was only 24 years old. So you have to be really cognizant of the choices that you make when you're covering these stories. I mean, the fact that so much coverage went to her crimes in the past, her not being a good mother, her drug history. Again, these are things that are important to shed light on a person, you know, in a story, but it's also a bit of victim blaming in my opinion. And I don't think it's fair. And I think that in the modern day of journalism, we should look more at the person, not so much the past activities because this person was trying to get help. She had been in rehab and this was somebody who hadn't turned her back on society she had issues, but she, again, is just like everybody else. Everybody's got issues, whether they're big or small. Issues are issues. So we should all be treated the same. It's kind of like what you're taught in kindergarten. Treat everybody the same. And that should be applied by the police as well as the news media. Because when you start to talk about somebody's criminal history you are literally making that person out to be a criminal, even if they were minor offenses that really didn't impact who Leah really was. So I appreciate the coverage of any journalist, of any story that goes into such detail as this particular case. But I do understand where Steve is coming from and his family when it comes to the exploitation of their trauma and tragedy.
I mean, let's just be honest. We've seen that with the Mahalovic case. I mean, Channel 5 ran a salacious story about new information that was apparently breaking news, but they waited till the first day of Sweeps Week to announce it. And, well, I worked in the news, and I worked for that news station, and I can tell you that that's probably not the best way to win over your audience or the family because it makes something out of nothing. And no other station reported on this so-called update, and it didn't take more than five seconds to Google what day does Sweeps Week start, and it was this first day. It's just... It's exploitative, and it's unnecessary. Everybody should learn a lesson from that, that we can all be a little bit nicer to one another when it comes to the reporting on so-called information or new information or the details of somebody's past, because those can all be misconstrued and can lead to basically victim blaming. That's it. So I want to jump back into one of Maxine Bernstein's articles from the Hartford Current that did cover the case and was discussing leads. And in the article titled Police No Lead Suspect and Dragging Death, basically she goes on to state that the Hartford Police had been focusing on a particular suspect in the dragging death of Leah, but Recent tests showed that fibers and paint taken from the man's car did not match those found on the victim or her clothes. Now, police did say that the man remains a suspect, but there is no substantial physical evidence that links him to the crime, and their investigation is continuing. Quote, we do not have a lead suspect in that case, unquote. Now, Bayuk commander of the Hartford Police Crimes Against Persons Division, was one of the first people that we talked about in this case. And again, he was there that day that the body was discovered. And he really wanted everybody to know that it was gruesome and unfair and not the way that anybody should die. So in this article, they discuss the fact that the past two months, the police had been centering their investigation on a 24-year-old who was currently in jail, and he was facing at least eight counts of kidnapping and criminal attempt to commit sexual assault. And those charges are not in connection with Leah, obviously, but they're in connection with Hartford and East Hartford cases involving assaults and threats against women. What a guy. Several of the women told police they were picked up in Hartford and taken to secluded areas in Hartford where they were beaten and forced out of a car. Now, police thought the man arrested in those beatings fit the description of the man last seen dragging Leah. Detectives did obtain a search warrant to search his vehicles, but one matched the color of the medium metallic blue paint chips found on the victim's clothing. But again, unfortunately... The recent forensic tests on the fibers and the paint chips showed no match. Now, there was at the time a $20,000 reward that had been presented by the governor, John G. Rowland, for information leading to the arrest of the individual involved in Leah's death. 
again, this is a case that remains unsolved to this day. So where do things stand now? Well, police have ruled out the victim's ex-husband, ex-boyfriends, and any other close friends and associates after interviewing them. They said they all know at this point the killer is a white or Hispanic male. He was seen driving a dark-colored, small to mid-sized car, and again, there's likely damage or was likely damaged to the right passenger door. Quote, it could be anyone. It could be the person out there people least expect, unquote. Lieutenant Joseph Bayuk told the Hartford Current. Now, again, Bill Fleming was the truck driver who was the last one to see Albrecht alive. He saw a man striking the woman in the front seat of a car stopped on Locust Street in Hartford. Now, when Fleming turned around to see if he could help, the car actually had took off and he could see Albrecht hanging from the passenger side. Again, police know of at least one other person who saw the car at that corner before it sped away. An unidentified woman phoned police from a fire call box on Locust Street, and she told dispatchers only that a woman was being dragged by a car. And again, this is a witness that is never been discovered. And it's really kind of wild in the sense that she's never come forward because if they knew who she was or interviewed her, they may be able to come up with more information. So it's really, really sad that this person did not decide to come forward. Zach Murdoch, a writer for the Hartford Current, wrote in October of 2019 that Despite a series of witness accounts and years of pouring over evidence, investigators were never able to bring a case against a suspect in the 1990s. Again, this crime predated mainstream DNA testing, and so subsequent attempts to test evidence kept from the scene in the early 2000s also did not identify a suspect. But he wrote that detectives hope a fresh look at the evidence and a renewed public interest in the crime could jog could jog long-lost memories or uncover new scientific evidence to finally bring Leah's killer to justice. Quote, there are still people of interest in this case, Jacobson said. Quote, we're utilizing new technology, so evidence submitted back in 1995 is being resubmitted, reanalyzed. Hopefully, those results will come back and allow us to do future interviews. I had mentioned the investigators focusing on certain cars and at the time, now, there was some witnesses who said that they thought the car was either a Nissan Altima or Maxima. And investigators actually looked at every single car, and they were unable to come up with any evidence. Now, we know today that this type of incident would be captured on surveillance cameras from all sorts of different places, whether it's CCTV, ATMs. Banks, you name it, there would have been one camera at least that would have captured this crime. And again, in this article by Zach Murdoch, he says one key witness, however, has never come forward. The woman at the corner payphone on Weathersfield and Elliott. Investigators even tried to entice the woman to speak to detectives in 2002 
when officials announced a $50,000 reward for information in the case, and that is the maximum allowed in Connecticut. Quote, because of the angle, the lights, she may be the only person who got a glimpse of the suspect's face, Jacobson said. He even went on to say that even now, we would love for that person to come forward and tell us what they saw, because that reward offer still stands today. Unfortunately, the other thing that remains still is the fact that the case is still unsolved. And with everybody, Leah deserves justice. Her family deserves justice. And I hope that one day this witness will step forward and provide police with the information that she saw on that night. I know that eyewitness testimony isn't the best testimony, but when you have a case that has gone on for nearly 30 years, it is time to step up to the plate and take ownership of the fact that you were a witness. I understand it's inconvenient, but if it can provide closure or some sort of respite for the family, please do what you need to do and come forward. It's all you have to do is submit a tip anonymously. You can say, I'm the person, but you don't even have to give your name. People want to hear from you because you might have information. And until you come forward, we may never know who killed Leah Albrecht. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week on this very difficult episode. I know that it was really gory and the fact that there is no resolution is extremely annoying but anyone with information about Leah's death is asked to call the Connecticut Cold Case Hotline at 1-866-623-8058 and again all calls are kept confidential as you know I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday wherever you get your favorite podcasts I do plan on dropping a new season of my passion case soon and I will be releasing those on Tuesdays so I will let you know when the season launches as always if you enjoy this podcast and my other shows you can help support Slow Burn Media which is my company by clicking on the donate button in the show notes or via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3 as I said in the beginning of the show Every contribution, big or small, really does make a difference. And you can also support the show by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite shows because those five stars help keep the important cases I cover, like Leah's, in the spotlight. If you guys want to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered as well as the new shows I have in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys again so much for tuning in this week. And until next time, everybody, stay healthy and be safe. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. 
That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew. But after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.